people talk about editing journals, not just bibliographical ones, although I shall concentrate on editing, on, on problems associated with editing the Bibliographical Society's journal, the library. I will, if I might, and if there's enough time, say a little bit about editing for the Malone Society. I don't know if you're familiar with the Malone Society or, uh, or with its problems and so forth, and indeed perhaps its successes now in more or less overcoming those. But I thought I'd begin in a slightly more personal way because I got into this whole business in an unusual manner. And such claim as I have to being an editor, um, in fact, stems from a non-academic background, not an academic background. I don't think journal editors usually talk very much about what they edit. And uh, as time, you may think that's a very good thing. It's partly because, in the main, it's really a pretty dull task, I suppose. I enjoy doing it, but it's not something that's intrinsically, intrinsically or entrancingly interesting. Um, I don't have many anecdotes. I don't have any anecdotes, I think. Well, I don't know. Of idiosyncratic scholars, um, because in the main, idiosyncratic scholars don't write the kind of articles that I can publish. You may think, having read some of the articles in the library, that they're pretty idiosyncratic and that they should never be published, but they're not the kind of um, enjoyable idiosyncrasies that, um, that are the substance of anecdote, I think. Most of the articles, at least, are intended to be the result of hard graft, and uh, that's the kind of thing we look for and we try to publish. Most of my work, in fact, is rather patient, detailed work, good or bad, and it's certainly sometimes bad. Uh, not deliberately, obviously, but it works out that way plodding around, checking and preparing for the press and reading proofs. And if I tell you that I've read a lot of proofs and there are many million, millions of words of these over the years, which is quite true, it doesn't exactly excite anybody, I don't think. Um, and endless correspondence. Endless correspondence. One contributor who had an article published in 1978 wrote me 37 letters. I only know because I checked before I came to make sure. 37 letters about that article, all of which required an answer. Some of them, very long answers, some of them 500 to 1,000 words, which are quite long for letters. If I published my letters in answer to correspondence, I would have a nice long list of publications. And the man whose only publication was his publication of examination questions set did the same sort of thing. Each of those letters, I think, nearly all of them required an answer. Some, of course, required letters to other people, referees. It was an article that was turned down three times before it was finally published. As soon as it was published, it was then reprinted into other collections. That must have been good in the end. But, um, but it was about 50 letters simply to get that into print. And if sometimes you wonder why an article did get published, it may have gone through a process of that kind and still left much to so in a sense, editing the library can be summed up by saying that almost every Sunday in the year I write letters and I check articles. And in the summer, when most academics worthy of their salt, which isn't all of them of course, are hard at work at their own research, I spend a fair bit of time, certainly a solid month, preparing the next four issues in their basic form for the forthcoming year, ordering all the rest of the material and writing individually, personally, to every contributor who has material with me, telling me, telling him or her of the status of that article. And at the minute, the next issue to go to press, in a sense, the next article for which I'm, next issue for which I'm receiving articles is March 1983, and everything else is more or less prepared up until then. Let me start what I've got to say proper and more personally by saying that I think I'm not the best person to be editing the library. I think I'm far from the ideal person. There are, I think, more fit scholars and scholars more advantageously placed who, in my view, ought to be doing this work. I've come to the conclusion that having done it for 10 years now, it's going to be very hard to persuade anybody else to take it on, but I live in hopes that each year somebody will get up at the annual meeting and propose somebody else as editor. You have to be re-elected each year. It's one of those things, if you've ever been to a Bibliographical Society meeting in London at the annual meeting, uh, the election of all the officers takes roughly one and a half minutes, I don't know, 60 seconds, something like that. And the bit about the editor just goes through. But um, 
which may be a good thing, but nevertheless, I think it's, uh, it would be nice if uh, there was a bit more competition. In a way, the journal is best edited, I think, from London or Oxford or Cambridge, because in that magic triangle, there is so much readily available uh, when it comes to checking what one um, is dealing with. Of course, there are always things that you can only check by looking at a particular manuscript in a particular place, but an awful lot of the material at least could be checked in part at any rate if one lived at one of those three places. <coughs> and indeed, that's where for 80 years it was edited up until 1971. So I speak very much with the feeling of one who is not the ideal person for the job and for one for whom for six years when I uh, was chairman of the Department of English at Lampeter, which I don't know if you've heard of, perhaps, uh, no? Clambeda Pont Stefan mean anything more to anybody? No. Well, well, it's uh, the oldest university institution in England and Wales except Oxford and Cambridge. Um, uh, it is now has 600 students, so it's growing rapidly since its foundation in 1822. And it uh, is in the depths of Wales and in a town of 2,000 people and doesn't boast much in the way of libraries, although it does, its little town library is in three languages, English, Welsh and Polish, but that doesn't help much when it comes to editing a library. And it does make it very difficult if you're working in a place like that, or even where I am now at the University of Kent, to be able to get rapidly and readily at things, particularly at the proof stage. It's all right, one of the reasons I prepare things much in advance is so that I can try to be sure that all the foreseeable problems have been dealt with. But of course, that is rarely how it works out. Always at the last moment, there are queries, particularly at the proof stage. Well, let me begin with a more personal beginning. I keep beginning, you see. It's a story of my life, actually. I actually began my working life with nothing to do with universities. I began in a film studio uh, at the age of 15, and after the usual war service, returned to work in films for MGM, amongst others. And then, with some 599 others, was sacked. And uh, was looking for a job, and my wife was here. We'd been married a month at the time, saw a card in a shop window saying, Editor wanted. And as I was a film editor, she thought, well, editing journals must be the same as editing films. And uh, I applied for the job. And uh, that sort of confidence of youth long since departed. Um, well, the fellow who ran the firm, one of my, was my first meeting with a captain of industry. Um, looking back, it explains to a great extent why our industry is like it is, I think. He was mildly concerned that I knew nothing about the subject of what I was going to edit. The subject was railways. Uh, he was a little interested that I had no knowledge of printing and none of editing. He sent me away to write a short article about railways. So my wife and I went to Paddington Station, which was nearby in London, and we observed the signals going up and down for a couple of hours in the summer sunshine. And I wrote a little article about it, and needless to say, got the job. That's a very interesting insight, I think, into the workings of British industry, I think. It was 1949, I was 22. I became, overnight, the house proofreader for a printer, with no experience, of course. The editor of a journal on railways, knowledge nil and experience nil. The author of the printer's house journal, knowledge nil experience nil. My pay was about $10 a week. It's very difficult to work out in 1949 terms. But if I tell you my rent was about $7.50 and my pay $10, it wasn't much money, etc. I worked there for two and a half years and I learned a tremendous lot. I learned a great deal about printing, partly because the man who, edited, who published this little journal, he published two or three journals, um, was really a printer and uh, he had two particularly good compositors. They both won national prizes, which was incredible in a firm that only had three stone hands. Uh, but they, two of them won prizes for design, for typographic design. And um, it was in the two and a half years I was there. And they were also very willing to teach, although it was sort of strictly against union rules and apprenticeships and this, that and the other. They taught me to set type and um, to fit things into forms and this, that and the other. And when I wasn't busy, I spent time with them, um, talking to them, watching what they did and I wouldn't say helping, but doing that sort of thing. And I learned a great deal about that. Amongst other things, I learned something which always puzzles students, at least I find it always puzzles students, and that's half-sheeted position, 
we regularly printed by half-sheet imposition, and this was in 1949, which also says something about British industry, I suppose, but we regularly printed in that way, and in fact the journal I edited was in, for a time, uh, it was a monthly journal, and we tried to increase the size, and in fact the thing became modestly flourishing, it's still going actually, and um, we wanted to increase the size, but couldn't afford to increase it by a whole sheet. So we printed two months at a time um, of the central section, uh, which provided, which cut down the middle, etc., produced you a perfect example of half sheet imposition all done in the middle. And uh, this enabled us to put an extra four pages in at an eight-page section. All very tricky, but it worked very well. And when I came to read Macero and half sheet imposition, it seemed so very obvious I couldn't understand why people found it difficult. I also wrote a monthly journal, um, for which I had no experience, about printing. I knew nothing about printing at all, of course which was a great asset because it meant you could make it up. There, there, is, there is a word in the printing industry called ways goose. Do you have it in America? A ways goose? Yes. There's a splendid explanation of the origins of the word ways goose, which I invented, was desperate for something to say. I'd been on a, a, an outing to Margate uh, for the ways goose, and so I had to, I worked out, uh, the boss said, you know, what's the definition of this word? And of course it isn't in the OED, but it will be in future years, because they'll come across my article and they'll find this marvellous explanation of how it existed. They also used to invent things uh, to fill in the space. One which you can try in the more boring moments of this talk is how many two-letter words you can join together making sense. How, construct a sentence entirely of two-letter words. I don't know how many you can think of offhand, but I tell you, par for the course is 72. 72 successive two-letter words. Well, that was printed up and down the country in different printers' house journals and in papermakers' journals and so forth, and uh, it's my only claim to literary fame. Uh, when we produced the 100 issue of this little journal, which was given the very subtle title of ink, uh, I wanted to find, so I brought it along actually, I wanted to find, the only paper I could find that was interesting was this very revolting looking paper written on each side. Let me go, this is in 1951, July 1951, and it was printed in a way, that's the name of the firm, with some, some sort of Christmas card writing here, a little bit from Caxton, and then earlier kinds of type and so forth, of which we had masses. We had marvellous kinds of type from the 19th century. We used to decorate this book, this journal about railways with these kinds of type. And uh, I don't know what, I, I couldn't really carry a copy with me actually, but if you ever come to England, I'll show you one. With these, so this letter T and these big L's in the margin, you know, and the compositors having a hell of a time trying to fit these wood blocks and so forth into the margin and make them fit in. And uh, it was very enjoyable. And uh, there's a bit with what was then relatively new, Bodoni, and finally, any and a little bit about ways gooses, which I became somewhat enamoured of. And we did various things like that, so I wrote this journal. But I became much more interested in printing, but unfortunately, of course, it didn't pay very much. And so the pull of the flesh pots came, and I joined what you know in this country as the Wool Bureau, Inc., or the International Wool Secretariat, where I worked for eight years, and decided perhaps I ought to be educated. And so I studied what we call A-levels at night school and then did a correspondence course for an honours degree in English and then an MA in my spare time. And when I went to University College to, do, to see the man who was going to supervise me, he looked at me rather askance. They hadn't had anybody do this in their spare time in those days. And uh, I was going to work on a um, piece of Middle English called London Lickpenny. And uh, he then said to me, what do you do? And I said, well, I work for a printer, or I used to work for a printer. Really, he said, you must do bibliography. And I obviously looked a bit blank. He said, you know what bibliography is, don't you? I said, well, it's a list of books. He said, you horrible man, etc. Well, that was the late Arthur Brown. He gave me one supervision in his room, and the rest were in a, in a hostelry known as the Marlborough Arms. Those of you who don't know Arthur Brown will have to guess why we always had our supervisions in a public house. It was, I'm afraid, in a way, his death, I suppose, in the end. Uh, but I was supervised by him, and eventually I went into that public house one night after working at the British Museum, library as it then was, and saw Arthur Brown and the late Hugh Smith, both somewhat inebriated, and they said, 
You want to work in a university, don't you? This is the world of academia, of course. And I said, yes, yes, I did. And they said, you could go to Australia. If you know your English history, that's where they sent convicts and people like that. And so, again, without any experience, and without even an interview, but with an x-ray, I went to the University of Sydney and taught bibliography, following Philip Gaskell, who had departed after five ghastly weeks. And he took the next ship back, printing press and all. Anyway, I stayed four years, and that's where I took my PhD. Went back to the Shakespeare Institute and to Birmingham. So in a way, I'm very unsuitable for doing this kind of work and have odd views about academic work and so forth at times, so don't be contaminated. Well, the first journal I'd like to mention, after the, the railway one, I haven't brought one along, where I learnt a lot. I mean, I learnt that words ought to be spelled the same, don't need to be spelled correctly, but it's best to spell them the same on the same page. I published an article once on the Calendar and Oban branch railway line, which may not be a household railway line to you. It isn't to most people in England either, fortunately, especially as it's in Scotland. And I managed to spell the word calendar six different ways in half a page, which one I rate... Um, contributor to the journal pointed out. Um, so I've been a bit more careful since, but I don't know if it's all that so. I was at Birmingham University. We hit upon the idea, in fact it stemmed from someone you may know, John Russell Brown, upon the idea that what the university ought to be doing was improving its relationships with the outside world. Of course he was quite right. Well, one of the things we thought we would do was produce a journal which would present in a popular form, sort of scientific American form, but dealing with all subjects, medic medicine and the arts and science, social science, presenting in a popular form but at an intelligent level, written by academics, if those things aren't mutually exclusive, of course, the work and the thinking of the university. And I think, in fact, it was an excellent idea. It was extremely difficult to get going. I was given the job of editing this. And it was only towards the last two issues that we really began to get it in anything like order. I just brought a couple of sort of covers along. These are, these are of course, are just Xerox. It's called Alpha. It's called Horror. scientific one. Uh, that's the beginning of that. It was a very nice issue, as a matter of fact. Uh, the science. We had the scientific thoughts of Chairman Mao, I remember, but also poems by John Updike and um, Auden. Auden wrote us a poem and so forth. So, and it was, in fact, it was a splendid issue, that. And uh, they're becoming collector's items, I'm glad to say, because I kept a couple of sets back. We used to issue three a year, and it went on from 1966 to 1970. Eventually, it was stopped by the Vice-Chancellor. We had a new Vice-Chancellor, and he stopped it because he wanted the money to finance a university newspaper, uh, a paper which he proudly announced that, when I wrote down that at the time, that would have no policy of its own, uh, but one which reflected the view of the administration. And even the chemical engineers objected to that, and so the whole thing was stopped. Well... When it was announced that this was stop, stopping, Robin Alston heard this and rang me up and said, would I edit the library? I was, of course, teaching bibliography at uh, Birmingham at the time, a three-year undergraduate course, as well as a sort of crash um, graduate course. And uh, I was, um, I had to go for a sort of interview that I imagine you only get in. The only, it was the first interview I'd ever had for an academic job at that stage of my life. I got one at Birmingham without an interview, and uh, one at uh, Sydney, as I say, without. But I had to go to the, a club in London and be interviewed. And I got the job, I think, because I could tell what wine we were drinking. It was Puyé Fumé, and uh, I'm sure that's why I got the job. I imagine you all know that the Bibliographical Society was founded in 1892. It's one of those societies which, uh, or its journal, I think I try to keep on the tradition, um, which goes in for having lots of series. 
Um, when I took it over, we were in series five. Uh, and I think it's a tradition one ought to continue because it's, it's rather nice. It confuses enumerative bibliographers and so forth, which is a good thing. Um, the first series didn't belong to the society at all. That's why it's called the library, which confuses many librarians or would-be people who are looking for things or send me journals and so forth. And uh, we took over a society's journal in 1892, and so the first series has nothing to do with us at all. Now, we issued transactions, hence the subtitle. We issued 15 of those, then 10 volumes of series 2 and 10 of series 3, and then, quite logically, 26 of series 4 and 33 of series 5. It's a nice natural logic, which is all being done away with in the age of metricity, or whatever you pronounce, however you pronounce it. So we now have series four. And this means that we will reach our 100th volume in the appropriate year, 1984. So amongst other things, if we reach 1984, that will be our 100th volume. And we shall be having a little, the only celebration we will be having will be a special index. Well, they're useful. In addition, of course, the Society has issued about a hundred monographs, and those include the short title catalogue. And if I mention that the revision alone has cost uh, £100,000, I wrote yes, about $250,000 to produce the revised version of Volume 2 for a Society which has less than 1,200 members, I think it is quite a remarkable achievement. When I took over in 1971, there were not enough articles for the next issue, which is rather a surprise, I must say. I therefore um, brought an article forward and published it without illustrations. Um, my predecessor, um, I should say, had been waiting 18 months for the illustrations to turn up, and they'd never come, and he couldn't get any reply from the contributor. And I was desperate, and so published it, and then waited for the storm to break, uh, I think he must have died, actually. I didn't hear anything from him. I sent him uh, some off-prints, and they were returned. And I've never known what's happened about that article, and I've been really rather either too naive or too decent to inquire further. In those days, uh, it was printed by the Oxford University Press, of course, as material was received, it would be sent to be printed as soon as it was accepted. Reviews would be, or short notes would be sent off in batches of about 30 typescript or manuscript pages. Uh, a whole article would be sent at a time. And then every now and again the press would pull up everything that had been kept standing for many months, uh, sometimes standing for a year or two years, and uh, issues would be made up from those galley slips. A very gentlemanly way of behaving. Well, when we set about making economies, as these were increasingly forced on us in the fond delusion that we could counter inflation, I made various changes in the production arrangements, and now everything is sent to press in whole issues in a rather obvious manner, except for the recent book section, which is sent a little bit later. Everything is sent in order with all the illustrations. Everything's totally marked up for the printer, whereas before nothing was. We only send typescript to the printer now. We like only to receive typescript. And as I'm in America, I can happily say we only receive typescript from the United States and Canada. We still receive manuscript from some of the older universities in Britain, in England, I could say, even, um, and they expect the editor to type them, which sometimes he does, or his wife does. Um, but everything is sent in one section, and for a long while I hit upon the device of sending proofs, if any articles, sending proofs in uh, page-proof form, because it, a custom had grown up of people rewriting their articles as soon as they saw them in print, and particularly re-paragraphing their articles, which I did feel was a bit unfair, not very sporting. And of course this is extremely expensive, I don't need to tell you. Well, we found that this has gradually paid off, and now we get a very reasonable number of uh, corrections. Obviously, there are corrections of certain kinds. There are simple slips, which can't be helped, I think. One's got to accept some of those. Uh, and there are things that have come out since, or revisions, or um, later uh, publications which need to be added to footnotes, and those sorts of things. 
but that's become something of quite a reasonable order. Um, I think the most time-consuming element of editing a journal of this kind is correspondence. In a way, I hate it. In a way, I like it, because I've been in correspondence with many interesting people all over the world for now for 10 years. And um, uh, most of them I've never met. Some of them, obviously, I shall meet for the first time tonight. And this is, in fact, over the period of time, there are odd letters one doesn't like to get, but by and large, it's been a matter of great pleasure to me. It's very time-consuming, and of course one does get other kinds of letters which I get increasingly short-tempered with over the years. Um, endless surveys from those taking library degrees or diplomas, asking for the history of the journal, and please return by, you know, get a complicated questionnaire of about 15 pages, asking for it in a date a fortnight ahead. Well, I'm afraid I've now stopped answering those. Um, I had to answer all the others. All requests from people who don't contribute or subscribe to the journal asking for free off-prints. Uh, those get pretty short shrift, I'm afraid. But other than that, I try as honestly um, as, as I can to engage in correspondence with people who write to me, never to reject an article without giving what I believe to be an honest reason, which is sometimes a mistake because obviously you can end up in, in quite a long correspondence. But it does seem to me there's nothing worse than getting just a rejection slip and if one can try to say why, one may be wrong, of course, it may be that an article can be improved or changed or shortened, which is often the case, and made acceptable. Um, I try to acknowledge every letter within the week it arrives, that is, usually on the Sunday after it's arrived, that I've received the letter, um, and uh, it, then I make up all the articles and the issues in the following um, July in the summer. And over the years, I think that's proved reasonably acceptable. Now, um, obviously one should try to ensure that a journal of this kind is accurate. Anyone engaged in bibliography of any kind, whether one's doing book lists, checklists, um, compository identification, anything of this kind, knows how incredibly difficult it is to be accurate. And being accurate with other people's work is really many times more difficult. Um, I soon realized that seriously attempting to be 100% accurate and losing sleep if I wasn't meant one of two things, well perhaps two of two things. One, I would go mad, and secondly, the journal would never get out. And of course that pretty nearly happened with one issue. One year's issues were not issued till two or three years afterwards simply because the editor at that time, who only lasted one year, could not bear for anything to be inaccurate. And he went to the ends of the earth to make sure everything was accurate. And we, I think, have to face the fact that to get things published anything like on time means that one risks a degree of inaccuracy. I don't mean one should aim for it, but one nevertheless, I think, has to accept that that will happen, especially, I'm afraid, now that it seems to me that over the ten years I've been doing this, um, the general standard of material I've been sent, not the exceptional material, but the general standard, has tended to decline. I have to do much more work on checking, much more work on preparing articles for the press, much more work on rewriting people's English. I don't think mine's up to much, but rewriting people's English to make it make something like sense um, uh, to relate footnotes to what is being said, illustrations to the text and these sorts of things. Well, obviously I try to check material carefully. I, that ought to go without saying, and however fallible one is, uh, nevertheless, that's obviously one of the things that one must try to do from the start. And obviously, well, I take advice. Um, I don't always accept the advice I'm given. That may seem rather stupid, but um, and if someone says this is all wrong, obviously I accept it. But sometimes I'm told that I don't think you should publish this, it's too long for various reasons. Then I'll write back to the person and suggest that the article is short in particular ways if certain sorts of things were done might be acceptable. Uh, if resubmitted, but there's no guarantee. And that, I think, has been quite a useful um, device. Um, regarding errors, I had an article two years ago which had been approved by another reader. Um, when I came to look at it, I was suspicious about one or two things and made a number of checks. It had over 120 errors of references in it. It's an enormous number, really, 
It took many hours of checking by me, the resources I had, to get something like right. Dates were wrong, the references to things like the short title catalogue were wrong, and so forth, spellings were wrong, and so forth. And uh, it has, there have been one or two corrections since, but it seems to be more or less right when it was finally published. And it is remarkable to me how many trained scholars are often completely incapable of preparing footnotes or providing proper references. I think, and it's not because I'm here, I'm not giving this lecture at Liverpool or somewhere else. I think I can say, in all honesty, that the, the preparation of this material in the United States is, is generally very much better. But nevertheless, one still gets footnotes which are quite awfully inaccurate. And people seem to think that footnotes can be put on their typescript single space, not realizing they always take more marking up than an ordinary text. So whatever you do to them, whatever little marks you put up for the printer, they always require more space because you're always given less. And then when they're inaccurately presented, um, it does make life extremely difficult, I think. And it has, I found, taken me a lot longer to prepare material. Generally, copy from North America is presented to far higher standards. It is, of course, always typed, which is more to be said for some material from England. Um, although I think, to put it the other, just to redress the Bible side, I think the grossest errors I've had, I'm afraid, have been in a couple of American articles. So let's not all be too sort of smug and happy about these things. That, uh, we're always walking on, on ice in dealing with this. The presentation has now become so bad that I now actually reject articles if the presentation, on presentation grounds alone, which I never did before 1979. But it has become so bad in some instances that I think it's, um, uh, it's, it just isn't fair either to me or to the printer. For example, I received an article a little while ago which was typed, um, and a very early typewriter, I should imagine, by a not very expert typist. Um, the right-hand margin was unjustified, which is perfectly reasonable, um, and in the gaps of the unjustified line were fitted footnotes. These footnotes were not presented with any regularity. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the title would be underlined, sometimes the author, uh, sometimes dates would be included, sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes parentheses would be used, sometimes they wouldn't. But they're all fitted into the margin, you know, around the side. Now, what I find incredible, and this is from a librarian, I find incredible that a librarian, a trained librarian, could present you with something like that and not imagine that isn't how something is presented. But, um, and at that stage I was still preparing things, but it was the one that broke the camel's back and um, I sent it back and uh, I had a very pitiful letter back saying, did I realise that uh, she would have to pay for a professional typist to do this and so forth and that uh, this was costing money and this sort of thing. In preparing material for this year, amongst the other things I noted down for this evening, footnotes varied, unsystematic, incomplete, all in the, within the same article, not between articles. You expect them to be different between articles, after all. Captions for illustrations are nearly always incomplete, usually not supplied. I've given you the photograph, what more do you want? Um, the picture's quite often not related to the text. Uh, you know, you spend quite a long while working out, what's this picture? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to send you that one. Uh, or even the picture and the text contradicting one another, which is very puzzling, actually. Um, the caption's usually left to the editor to type up. And in this world, I've decided that that is, in fact, probably the best thing. Give me the information and I'll get it into something like the order. One of the most infuriating things I've come across is people who omit the titles of the works they're talking about. And you'll be surprised how often that happens. Uh, and it's quite difficult sometimes to work out what they mean, and very often you have to send it back. But you, you, can, you can sometimes cannot notice that as you're reading it through to see whether the article's generally right. You come to the sub-editing stage, you find, God, they haven't mentioned the articles. And, of course, these um, unimportant words like A and the, and whether they should be there at all or not, well, they vary from page to page. People still send unpaginated articles, which, uh, again, surprise me anyway, it doesn't matter. They get to make them scholarly. They use these lovely words like the bid, opposite, and a favourite, which is locksit. Um, very often, very difficult to relate. The kind of people who have a habit of using this. And I hope I'm not offending anybody here. At least I hope I'm offending the right people. If I'm offending anybody. People who have a habit of using this very often don't work out what they're relating it to, 
And so when you come to work back, and obviously one thing the editor has to do is to work out that all the footnotes refer to the text. And you get the lock sits, and you don't know what city's locking. You know, you've no idea where it is. So clearly this is no use to, to the reader. And those obviously have to go back. And then, of course, simple matters of incomplete sentence uh, construction and paragraphing. Uh, the verb is rapidly going out, I can assure you, and relatives are not usually related to principles any longer. And so things have to be done. I don't mind this if this comes from a writer writing a Swede or a Dutchman writing in English. Uh, the general formal style is usually very good then, and, but quite often one has to do a certain amount of work to make it slightly more idiomatic. And that can be difficult because one has to reconstruct quite a lot sometimes. But that's reasonable, and I think that's worth doing. But it is annoying, I think, and if any of you are teaching these sorts of things, um, anything you can do to improve this sort of thing will certainly be welcomed by many editors other than by me. Well, obviously, I read the material. Um, I take and decide, in the first case, where I think it's worth publishing, and then I take advice. The society is of a kind that expects me to be the final judge and to take responsibility for it, which in some ways is quite nice. We don't have any committee or anything like that. And until someone objects at a, at a general meeting, um, that will be, um, I presume, I shall still go on until I say I won't. But on what basis should one judge? On what basis have I got to say, should I judge? Well, accuracy, usefulness, logical arguments, working from evidence clearly set out. Um, some consideration, I think, for the general reader, because not everybody wants all the articles to be so highly specialised, I think. One must remember that most of the, the people, most of the individuals who subscribe to the library have, are only interested in a very small amount of material, and, um, uh, and I think one has to bear in mind the interest of the general reader, hoping they'll keep subscribing. Well, I don't know what you think of that, those sort of criteria, but it does seem to me that one should expect a contributor to be logical, and accurate and useful. Work from evidence, set it out. One contributor was very angry indeed that I presumed to judge the validity of an article on such a basis. I quote, why must an article convince you? What is the relevance of that to publication in the library? Is it necessary that lines of argument should follow strictly from the initial premise? I continue to quote, the correctness or incorrectness of my statements is not the prerogative of an editor to judge. This is the privilege of readers of the published material. And on this basis, a complaint was lodged to the society about my competence. That's a waste of time, incidentally. you much better take something out of it. get very far. I mean, it should do, but it doesn't. Now, ironically, I see the point of that. I don't quote those things to, to mock what the... In fact, that article was published eventually, so uh, there were various modifications and things done, but it was published. But I do see the point, as a matter of fact. If only what cons convinces me... I mean, there, there are limits, of course, I know, but, if, but on the other hand, if only what convinces me as an editor is published, then there is a hardening of the lines of published discussion. Uh, and so I think well, I have to be very careful in deciding whether I think something is right or not. That's not quite the same about being logical and trying to be accurate and so forth. But it's very, very easy, I think. And I think um, it's a sort of um, um, an occupational hazard of editors that they must um, assume some God-given power that they do know what is right uh, and what ought to be published. And sometimes I publish things with considerable doubts. And sometimes the doubts are justified and sometimes they certainly aren't but I do also have to bear in mind that everything we publish and I'm using last year's figures everything that we publish costs 16 pounds that's, uh, that's about 40 dollars more per page to print than we receive in subscriptions so that is a straight problem that, that we get subscriptions from a relatively small number of people and institutions and I am in a sense always overspending all the time. The editor, I think, has a responsibility to other prospective contributors as well, because what I don't publish, what I do publish, means I can't publish other things, and quite a lot is rejected. And it obviously, the editor obviously has a responsibility to the society, um, and to ensure that the life of the journal is continued. So these kinds of things 
all come into play when one is editing. Curiously, the most objected to article I ever published, and oh, an article that should never have been published, and I made quite a serious error, I think, in publishing it, received three stern letters about it, all of which incidentally were published, so you can work out who it was, um, was that article was approved by a very distinguished scholar. That's no excuse. I think I should still have picked up the, the errors myself. Um, I try, when errors are pointed out, to link corrections with the article in the index. The index comes out the next year, and I try where possible. It isn't always possible, because uh, sometimes the errors come in later. But you will find in the last uh, two, three, four indexes, um, after an article, and there haven't been so many, obviously, but an article that is seriously at fault, or which, to which serious exception has been taken, see, uh, and then an issue of the following year, or even the year after, to try to ensure that when people are working from indexes uh, can pick up where the error is. Because obviously it takes a long while to get the corrections into print. So we try to overcome that so far as it's possible. It isn't always easy to get material read, and it certainly isn't easy to get material read by referees quickly. The reasons are obvious. The people who one most wants to read things are usually the most busy. and They're doing this sort of thing too often, and they have usually too many other tasks to do. It can be worrying. I had a couple of articles which were with someone for over two years. I finally got them out of them. Uh, I'm still unread, I'm afraid, um, when I was uh, threatened with legal action by one of the uh, contributors for uh, holding up that contributor's career. I don't know whether it would have um, stood up in the courts, but I thought it might have been very nasty and something I thought I could do without. Um, um, yeah, that will do. I've written elsewhere in analytical and enumerative bibliography on the problems posed by the presentation and selection of bibliographical evidence. I won't say anything more about that now. Getting a journal out nowadays is a nightmare. I've got a couple of books of my own coming out at the minute. Uh, I say uh, fondly, fondly in the Elizabethan sense of being on the fit of lunacy uh, that they're coming out. I've had the printed covers uh, for four months. Uh, I was then assured I would have the proofs in, uh, in, in July. I noticed on the printed covers, that they're, being printed by, they're being published by Macmillan and Barnes and Noble, uh, that they're now being printed in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, they said, assured me this would only mean they would all be printed in six weeks. I imagine all these Hong Kongese setting up the type all overnight and so forth and producing it in no time at all. I went to the Shakespeare conference to see a little announcement that uh, this, these two books were being published in November 1981. So uh, we all have problems of this, this kind. Um, uh, it took six weeks to write the two books, and you know, about six years to get them published. Um, but getting things out is particularly difficult. As soon as I took over the journal, we had a big postal strike in England. Um, Oxford University Press has all sorts of printing go slows, fires, and then they've had a flood immediately after the fire, and changes of staff. Um, let me give you an instance, a fairly early one. Managed to get up to date by the summer of 1973. Then we had the Harry Carter Festschrift issue. I moved from Birmingham to Lampeter, so I had all my stuff to move, and books and so forth, and a new department to take over. By that due date in September, of the 15 articles, two had arrived. By Christmas, for a big issue, and if you've seen the Harry Carter issue, it's quite a big issue, but, uh, for a big issue to appear in the March, by Christmas, a lot of artwork to be done, 11 of the 15 articles have been received. One was promised at fortnightly intervals until the issue appeared, and then the man gave up promising that it would appear. I've not yet had the article. Uh, I don't know why he didn't write the article instead of keep writing me letters. One very late article required some illustrations, and the correspondence is quite interesting. I'll keep it all anonymous. It's from the, these are all from the University Press. The first is dated the 15th of February. The article was to appear, the issue was to appear a fortnight later, you'll recall. Mr. X called at the press yesterday and left the enclosed prints, which are to illustrate his article in this issue. He asked that they all be reproduced at approximately the original side by the half-tone process. But we think you ought to see them before we go ahead. Ah, that was a great courtesy to let the editor see the illustrations. Apparently three or four are still to come, uh, and Mr. X has promised to send captions, indicating their final arrangements within the next few days. 
27th of February. Thank you for your letter. A further photograph arrived today and two are in hand at Bodley. That struck horror in my heart. That could take any time. And the next letter, the next line confirmed it. These photographs will be delayed, apparently, because the operator at Bodley is away sick. 20th of March, three weeks after publication date. Mr. X has today given us another half-tone print of similar quality and also a line print. Apparently there is one further subject to follow. Will you wish to see these? 1st of May for the March issue. Here are the proofs. This is from the contributor. I've been extraordinarily long about them, but I'm only just back from abroad and I've had a bit of time, a bit of trouble fitting the plate references in. I haven't seen a proof of the captions yet, but they can't be long with it now. The alterations to the last paragraph have also been a bit of a problem. I feel sure it is better than what I originally wrote. This is now July for the March issue. It's a short letter from the printer to the, the university. It's headed the library, March 1974. Advanced copies will be ready on the 23rd of August. We shall complete binding on the 26th of September. So I wrote and said I wasn't very pleased about this. I'm sorry, but we are not without our problems following the recent flyer, fire, since which we have had a flood. It came out, I think, in October. Now, I've tried to stop this sort of thing um, because it's also tied in with cost. Um, one of our great problems, of course, is that whereas the journal costs about 3,000, I'll say it in pounds because it doesn't matter in terms of it's the, the multiples that matter, the journal costs about 3,000 pounds to publish in 1971, and last year it cost nearly uh, 18,000 pounds. So it's gone up six times in costs in those years. Um, I have, uh, we have moved to a different printer. Uh, this has reduced the cost quite considerably. Um, we are, in fact, increasing the, vo the volume. This size will be considerably longer. It'll be about 460 pages this year. But this, in fact, is partly a ploy on my part to hedge against inflation, to get as much in while I can. And the more difficult articles, last year was full of difficult articles to set. I don't know if anybody noticed that, but it was full of articles in Old French and Welsh and Latin and this, that and the other, to get as many of these sorts of things out of the way um, whilst I could. Um, because the costs simply keep going up. But the great advantage with the new printer, uh, now I'm afraid, is that um, they are so much better at keeping in touch with the editor than the Oxford University Press has become. Oxford um, had a very curious system regarding proofing. You were allowed a fortnight for proofing. Uh, if you think how long the post takes anyway in the best organized societies, it meant that proofs came to me from Oxford, went from me to the contributor, and then back to me, and I marked up the master set and sent it to the printer, and I was allowed a fortnight for this. Um, it was explained to me that this was on the basis that any, anybody worth anything lived in Oxford, uh, and obviously could simply mark up the proofs and take them back to the press. I pointed out that this didn't happen anymore, but they were adamant, and I was only allowed a fortnight, and this had a marvellous effect. I was always late with the proofs, therefore they didn't need to keep their schedule. And we had constant problems with this. So I had to allow nine to ten months for each issue to appear. We now got this down to about five and a half. And it's even better than that. Within that, I'm allowed two months for proofing. And it takes at least, I have to allow six weeks, four things to go to, obviously to America, Canada, Australia. Um, we had an article from um, Swaziland and so forth. And these things all take a lot longer to print and so forth, um, uh, to, to prove. But this has made things very much better. And so I think I can say we have had a printing strike this year. But I was hoping to bring Mr. Tansell the September issue for, so he could see his review in print. But um, I, in fact, I left just before it arrived, unfortunately, the day before. But the September issue is out. Sometimes the issues have come out a fortnight before they were due, which means that, given luck, they reach uh, North America just about within the month. Um, when they have their date on them. Um, that varies a bit with the postage. So that's improved a great deal. Um, right, I, I will hurry on actually. I can see the time is going on. One of the greatest problems which an editor faces, I think, which has been very subtly solved by studies in bibliography, um, is the matter of reviews. Studies in bibliography don't have any. Um, reviews, uh, there wants to be 
full, and I've tried over the years, I hope with some success, to get much fuller and more detailed reviews, and if a reviewer has something to say, I'd rather he had at least as much space as someone writing an article about it. It's about an important book. Um, but of course, you can get reviews which might cause offence. I had one such review, and it would be obvious, I don't need to hide any names, um, in, a, in an issue in 1978, when uh, Tony Petty's literary manuscripts was reviewed uh, in a very savage manner. Um, and it was the first time I declined to publish a review as it stood, not because of what it said, but because I thought one passage was libelous or slanderous. Well, that was sorted out. That was easy enough to deal with. But the, the, the real problem is this, that for someone, and Petty works in Canada, for someone working in another country, um, by the time his copy of the review has been received, and he's written a reply, and it's got to me, and when we were at Oxford it was published, that was the best part of a year, by which time that existing review had been current the whole time. And it is a matter of some anxiety, obviously, if a review is of that kind. Um, but that is the only one that has been quite as savage. Uh, well, I tried to solve the petty matter, uh, by allowing him to reply and the reviewer to see his reply and this, that, and the other. But in the end, neither party was satisfied, and obviously it's not a thing that I can do again. Um, it's, um, but it is a bit of a difficulty. One wants reviews that are honest and full and detailed. Uh, they seem to be one of the most important things that one can offer. Uh, it's a running review sort of work that we're doing, um, but dealing with them in a way that is both um, practical and humane isn't really easy. Well, let me, if I may, conclude uh, by mentioning one or two general issues. Obviously, a journal like the library, um, though you, you're, there are plenty in our, our, both our societies, cannot find it easy to survive in times like these, times of inflation. I've felt that in, in Britain, and I wrote a little piece about this, in Britain, um, our academics growing up nowadays in a society in which most of them, at any rate, had had all their education paid for them at school and at university, then as, uh, uh, as graduates, um, somehow felt that they didn't need to belong to learner societies or subscribe to journals, from which, by and large, they would only receive immediate benefit uh, occasionally. After all, anyway, you can get the journal in the library and so forth. And it has seemed to me one of the things that uh, it's vital to do is to encourage people to belong at least to two or three societies. Uh, I belong to 15 to make sure that I, I do, you know, play fair in this, but um, I do think it's very important that we do, as um, uh, people involved in the general world of academia, even if there are journals which only, often, only rarely do we find a direct benefit to us, if we are going to keep um, uh, the exchange of information, the publication of information um, healthy, uh, I think we have to support it ourselves as a general um, uh, a general contribution we make to um, our work, even if the particular benefits may be rather remote. Um, uh, one thing I did want to mention just in passing, I do try to keep a balance between overseas articles and British articles, and if you look over this 10-year period, 1971 to 1978, there have been 82 articles from the United Kingdom, 86 from overseas, of which 51 have come from the United States, 67 bibliographical notes from the United Kingdom, 69 from overseas, of which 34 have come from the United States. So 149 from the United Kingdom, 155 from overseas, of which 85 from the United Kingdom. Obviously most reviews uh, uh, come from England, although not in Britain, but not, not exclusively. But that's a deliberate policy to try to, uh, to do this. And I think probably it's a more even balance than most journals. Um, the other problem, problem uh, is of a rather more general kind, is what should a journal like the library do? The objects of the society are very broad, to promote and encourage study and research in fields of historical, analytical, descriptive and textual bibliography, the history of printing, publishing, bookselling, collecting and bookbinding, to hold meetings and present papers for discussion. Thirdly, I think you've had about 50 by now, to print and publish works concerned with bibliography. Then there are a few others. As you can see, except for modern librarianship, practically everything is grist to the mill, according to that description of our aims. 
I have decided there's only one class of information which I now rigidly exclude, and that is checklists. I do include lists of um, the libraries of scholars and so forth that might mm, be a benefit, but checklists I have now excluded, rather regretfully, because I think they can be very useful, but simply because every time I publish one, I received another dozen. Um, because everybody had done a thesis, or, you know, from which there was a bibliography, which they saw here was a publication. They were difficult to check, they were very variable, and so forth, but it was simply the numbers. It would have taken, you know, twice as many issues of the library the whole time. Um, so that is one of the things that, that I exclude. You may not have noticed that one of the things that we've tried to develop over the last few years has been um, a, a particular series of studies um, on early printing and what went on in the printing house. This has stemmed from the time since Don Mackenzie wrote Printers of the Mind, earning him, you will remember, Paul Duncan's title, The Prophet of the New Incredulity. There has been an assumption, I think, that certain early um, 18th century printing processes could be transferred to the late 16th and early 17th century. And producing what Johann Gerritsen called the teaching of pre-industrial Plantinian chaos. Now, as I've written on a number of occasions, I agree with Mackenzie's arguments as far as the logical rigor is concerned, although I'd like to see some room for irrationality. But I'm far from happy with the assumption of casual, unorganized compositor-press relationships. So I've been encouraging studies on the regulation, practice, regulation of the press, practice of press practice as it's uh, written up, lawsuits affecting printing house organization and so forth. So we've had a series of pieces, the piece by the Hellingers on regulations relating to the planning and organization of work by Plantin. Gerritsen's very important letter, um, which, uh, of June 75, which I think has been overlooked too often. A couple of articles by James Binns on uh, Latin books, uh, uh, STC Latin books, and what is said there about printing house practices, from which I think a lot can be learned. Uh, Jacques Rickner's article on running the um, Swiss printing house at Neuchâtel. Recently, in June of this year, uh, Gilmore's article on printers by the rules, which itself ignores um, uh, Gerritsen's letter, incidentally. And I'm still hoping for a sustained study on the Frankfurt ordinances. And these have been backed up by one or two other articles of other kinds on press figures and galleries and so forth. Now, what this raises various problems, and I shall conclude with this. I'll leave the Malay Society this. I think I've gone on long enough. Um, raises a, 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 a bit of a problem. These sorts of articles all, uh, um, all involve translation. You notice each one of these, Gilmore's, Rickner's, Binz's Latin, Gerritsen and Hellinger, they're all translations. And of course, those from Latin are, um, there was not too much printing going on in the Roman Empire. And so they're all words that are made up or adapted for use by printers in the uh, 15th, 16th century. And their interpretation can be difficult. Well, Binz tried to overcome that by giving the Latin and the word he was using and so forth. Um, Gerritsen objected to what Hellinger was doing because he didn't think he was, they were translating the old, the early Middle East, 16th century Dutch accurately or in the way it should be translated and so forth. And this also brings up the parallel uses of uh, words in different languages, parallel practice. Uh, Gerritsen is unhappy about Gilmore's uh, translations as well, or Shaw's translations of Gilmore. And what I would hope is that when we, if we can get a few more articles of this kind, what I would like to see is a um, small working conference, not from these big ones, the sort of thing that many years ago I enjoyed at the Rockefeller Center at Bellagio, where there were just 19 people sitting down uh, with specialized knowledge, trying to hammer out what might have been intended in these different kinds of ordinances and so forth. It does seem to me that there is a very great deal that we can still learn about the printing of that period um, from uh, lawsuits um, and uh, regulations issued by French kings, by uh, the printer's ordinances, uh, Latin inscriptions and so forth. Uh, and I hope when we had a few more articles of this kind that the various people who have been involved um, various people with the language expertise as well can come together and we can perhaps um, produce um, something perhaps a little more authoritative on this line. 
That's the one area that I hope that we can work in. The other areas I'm always particularly keen, and we spread it about, to have material is on 20th century material. It's quite hard to come by, and I'm very keen to have 20th century bibliographical studies. Uh, the others, I think, will come, but good 20th century material, I think, is valuable, and perhaps sometimes reminds, and I'm speaking only of England, of course, reminds our scholars of 20th century literature that the texts they rely upon, as Black remarked many years ago, are very often unreliable with their novels and so forth, and that is something still too often ignored. Thank you very much for your patience.